Hey, this is Ed Luther, pastor of City Church in Australia. I hope that today's podcast really inspires you. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, If we haven't met, my name is Mitch. Uh, If you're joining in online or whether you're here in person, welcome. Uh, We're actually in a series right now called How to Walk in the Will of God, which has just been so epic um, the past three weeks now. This is week four in this series. And um, it's, it's such a poignant message for today, this day and age, especially for my generation Um, It's so hard. It feels like harder than ever to find what is the will of God for my life. There's so many distractions, uh, whether it's social media, you know, we're just faced with this onslaught of other people's highlight reels into their world and and constantly wondering, is this God's will for my life? Because if so, I'm nowhere near that. Um, Or, you know, watching movies or watching reality television going, is that God's will for my life? It seems like something I desire. Um, But is that God's will? So it's hard to figure out what is God's will for my life uh, specifically. If you're new to church uh, or if you're listening online and and maybe uh, you've never been to church or or heard about uh, what we're about here at church before, uh, we we are a radical group of faith-filled people who believe uh, with all our hearts that the creator of the whole universe, the creator who created everything, actually has a unique will. Uh, for each and every one of us, something specific and purposeful and, and, and designed for us, which is a pretty big claim when you think about how many people there are uh, on planet Earth. And, and uh, so that's what we believe. Um, so this morning, uh, I want to continue on in this series and talk about an integral part of this finding and walking in the will of God. And that is this idea of uh, God's promises. God's promises to us are uh, perhaps one of the most important gauges of how to walk in the will of God. And specifically, I want to talk about the dichotomy between where you are now and the promise that God has given you, and then all of the challenges in between these two places and all the opportunities in between these two places. Because this is kind of a a hard thing, uh, especially for my generation, the generation of instant everything. You know, we want everything right now, right now. Amazon daily. I don't know if you guys do Amazon uh, same day deliveries here in Australia, but in New York, that's like the thing. It's like, get, I want it now, same day. You know, soon it's going to be, give it to me yesterday. You know, it's going to be, I want you reading my mind and telling me what I want before I even know I want it, you know? So that's like, that's the generation that I live in right now. So it's hard uh, to grapple with this idea of God promising me something that perhaps I'm not going to experience for quite some time. Uh, and then the, the things along the way. So um, let me just orient my iPad here. So uh, we're in a series right now about finding the will of God and um, the title of today's message, uh, if you're taking notes, is a gun in a knife fight. So you may have heard this expression, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Uh, if you don't know what that expression means, it basically just means if you're going into a battle of any kind, bring an appropriate weapon is what that means. Don't bring a knife to a gunfight. You're going to have a bad day. Um, so my title of my message this morning is A Gun in a Knife Fight. Now, the Bible is filled with underdog stories. We love 
a good underdog story, don't we? Just as, as people, as humanity, we love a good underdog story. We love a story of, of someone who, you know, is seemingly incapable of defeating uh, some sort of overpowering nemesis, and then against all the odds, they come through. The Bible is filled with underdog stories, and perhaps our favorite underdog story in the whole Bible is David and Goliath. That's probably our, I don't know if it's your favorite. It was always my favorite growing up. Dad used to read to me out of a uh, children's Bible, and children's Bibles are fun because they're kind of a highlight reel of the Bible. They don't have the whole Bible in them. Like in my children's Bible, it said nothing about Job or like, you know, anything like that. There's no, it's just all the best stories, right? And, and no children's Bible is ever complete without the story of David and Goliath. That's an all-time favorite of everyone's. We love an underdog story, and we love David uh, not just because of uh, what he encountered with Goliath, but also just his story in general is so, so good. It's such a good three-dimensional story of, uh, of, of a person. Now, promises is what we're talking about this morning. And promises come in many forms, right? The Bible is filled with so many promises, starting with Abraham, okay? Abraham is uh, 75 years old living in his dad's tent, okay? He's a bit of a failure to launch. He's, uh, he's somebody who, you know, hasn't got a whole lot going for him. His dad is building idols, uh, building fake gods, and, and uh, Abraham's uh, name is Abram at the time. And then he encounters God, okay? God calls him out of his dad's basement and gives him a new name, Abraham, father of many nations, right? Abraham is 75 years, doesn't have a single child, right? And God gives him a promise that not only are you going to have a child, you're actually going to have so many children. Go ahead and look up at the stars. That's going to be how many children that you have. So Abraham is all excited about this. He tells his wife, Sarah, and they are super old and they have no kids, and they receive this promise, and it makes them laugh so hard. You can go read about it in Genesis. It makes them laugh, and God says, why are you laughing? And uh, 25 years goes by before they have their first child, Isaac. 25 years. They're 100 years old now. And that's, that's when the beginning of this promise starts to happen. And that's important because it tells us a few things. It tells us that it doesn't matter what age you are, God can give you a radical promise. Okay? And so then Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, which is where we get the 12 tribes of Israel. The youngest of those sons is Joseph, the guy with the fancy coat of many colors. Okay? Joseph is a bit of an underdog. His, his, uh, all his brothers hate him because his dad loves him so much. He's the most popular and he gets all the nice stuff. He gets the fancy coat. And also because he starts receiving these prophetic dreams about how his brothers are all going to one day worship him and, and bow down before him. And he decides, I don't know why, to tell his brothers this. It just doesn't seem like it would ever be a good idea. Tells his brothers, hey, I have this prophetic dream. And so what do his brothers do? His brothers, they sell him into slavery in Egypt. So this is another way that God gives us a promise, through a prophetic dream. Abraham has a direct encounter with God. God says, hey, 
I am the only God, which is important because Abraham is in the industry of creating fake gods, fake idols. So he has a radical encounter with God. God tells him, I'm the one true God, gives him a promise personally. 25 years later, God starts to bring that into fruition. And then many generations later, we encounter Joseph. Joseph starts receiving a promise in the form of a dream, not in the form of a direct word. A dream, an ambiguous dream too. It's filled with weird imagery of wheat and like other stuff, bowing down before other stuff. It doesn't really give him a complete picture, but he knows it's prophetic and he knows it's a promise. So then he gets sold into slavery in Egypt. Then he spends 15 years in prison in Egypt without any sight of this promise or this dream coming to fruition. So after 15 years of having a prison ministry in Egypt, Joseph ends up becoming second in command of the most powerful nation on earth at the time and becomes the savior of the whole ancient world. Uh, And all of his dreams, his prophetic promises start to come true. 15 years of prison before that happens, right? So then the Israelites start to develop as a nation in Egypt, which is interesting. He takes, God takes the Israelites out of the land of Abraham, out of the land of Canaan, and brings them into exile to develop them into a nation. So he starts developing Abraham's promise, not where Abraham is comfortable, not in his dad's basement. He gives him a call to adventure. They end up in Egypt. This is where he develops them into a nation. So many generations later, we have 4 million Israelites in slavery in Egypt. Then we encounter another guy, Moses. Moses receives a promise from God from a burning bush, right? And Moses gets told he's going to deliver the whole nation out of Egypt under the tyranny of a very evil king, okay, who's not going to let his, his slave army go very easily. He leads them out. He gets told he's, he's going to lead them to the promised land, which in fact is actually just the place that they came from where Abraham lived, right? So Moses does this. 40 years later, right? A two-week journey takes him 40 years to, to see this promise come to fruition, right? He uses the wilderness, the 40 years in the wilderness, God uses that as a time to develop this nation, into what is now going to inherit the promise. Moses doesn't even get to go into the promised land. In fact, he has to sit on a hill and watch Joshua, his understudy, lead the nation into the promised land. So Joshua leads the nation into the promised land and with the intention of destroying all of the other kingdoms that are currently occupying it. God tells him, you need to go in here and we need to dismantle all of these other strongholds. There's 36 kingdoms. I don't know why I put up four fingers. If I had 36 fingers, I'd put up 36 fingers. There's 36 kingdoms in the land of Canaan that that Joshua has to dismantle before they're going to build in the promised land because God doesn't want them intermingling with all of these other gods, all these other idols, all these other cultures. He wants them to be set apart, right? So they inherit the promised land. They go in and they destroy almost all of them, not all of them, okay? They're like, ah, good enough. We did most of them. There's still a few left, right? So Joshua dies. And then we enter the book of Judges, which is one of my favorite books in the Bible. 
And the book of Judges, 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 Judges is where we encounter this dark time in Israel's history where they don't have a king like any of the other nations because they're supposed to be the one nation that doesn't need a king. Their king is God. So they're in, uh, so this is, this is a picture of what happens when they start actually just just letting these other nations influence them. So they start worshipping other idols and intermarrying with these other cultures and communities and just like, you know what, each to his own. If you want to worship Baal, that's fine. You know, in fact, we can just all worship everything together. And so there's this really dark time where they keep disobeying and then one of then God raises up a champion deliverer, which is the, the Hebrew word that we translate to judge. It's not a judicial judge. It's literally a, a person that God raises up to deliver them uh, from some sort of oppression because they keep disobeying God and they keep doing what's wrong in God's eyes and he keeps raising up deliverers because that's who our God is, right? And so... Uh, eventually we get to the book of Samuel. And uh, at this point, uh, the nation of Israel has been a nation for quite some time. They're starting to get their bearings as a nation, but they don't have a king and they really would love to have a king. All of the other nations have a king. The Babylonians have their king. The Egyptians have their pharaoh. Why don't we have a king? So they go to Samuel because Samuel is the spokesperson for God at the time. And they go, why don't you ask God to give us a king? And Samuel explains to them what I just explained to you, which is we don't need a king. God is our king. And they're like, okay, we get it, but we do want a real king. And so he's like, fine. So they appoint this guy, Saul, as king. And Saul is kind of this Captain America type fellow. He's super good looking, super tall, really charismatic. And just like, you know, everyone loves him. He's a great warrior. So they, they make Saul the first ever king of Israel, which is a big deal. Not only that, he's going to be the direct lineage to the Messiah who's going to one day uh, come and, uh, you know, who we know as Jesus. This is a big deal. And so Saul, he's king for a bit and he doesn't do a good job of it. He ends up disobeying God. He ends up doing what's wrong in the Lord's sight. So God ends up going, you know what? I'm going to appoint a new king. And that's where we encounter our favorite underdog, David. So God tells Samuel, go to the house of Jesse. One of his sons is going to be king. So Samuel goes to the house of Jesse, who's this man who lives out in the middle of nowhere. And he goes through seven of these sons that Jesse puts in front of him. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we're going to go from uh, verse 10 to 13. So Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all of your sons? Well, there's still the youngest, Jesse answered. So Jesse didn't even bring all of his sons, right, which is super shady. We're still the youngest, but he's out tending to the sheep, right? So this is why Jesse didn't go and get David, because David is like about three days' journey away out in the middle of the paddocks tending to the sheep. And Jesse, in his mind, is thinking, okay, Samuel's come to appoint the new king. It's definitely not going to be 
David. Because David is the last one in the lineage. And in, in Jesse's experience, it's usually the firstborn. And even Samuel thinks that. If you go back and read uh, chapter 16 from the beginning, you see that, that Samuel goes from son to son and goes, oh, this guy looks like he's the guy. He's tall, he's handsome, he's charismatic, he's a warrior. Definitely he's this guy. And God's like, no, not that guy. And he goes down the line, goes through all seven of the sons until he goes, it's none of these. You've, are you sure you're not hiding a son somewhere? And then Jesse's like, well, actually, funny you mention it. Yes, I do have another son. This is super embarrassing. He's out in the paddock. So Samuel says, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. Which if you knew how far away David was at the time, you'd be like, oh, no. But this is actually a super important side point because what God has called for you to enter into will actually wait until you get there. He says, we're not going to move until David gets here. And I believe that's true for all of us today. Like Lockie, I believe that there are, writing, there are songwriting rooms. There are songs that are not going to get written until you enter that room. You know? I was uh, hanging out with Lockie this week, and he was showing me some of his uh, songs he's been writing, and they're just so, so good. And I believe that there is just such an anointing on your life, man. And so I'm excited to see what God does. So they sent for him and had him brought in. This is verse 12. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Now David was 13 between 13 and 15 at the time of this, okay? So this is a pretty big deal for David to get told when he's just a young teenager that he's going to be the second king in the history of Israel. And he gets told this in front of all of his brothers, okay? So his brothers are all older than him. And this, you know, according to what we witnessed with Joseph and his brothers, this probably didn't go down well with them. They were probably all pretty excited. You know, Jesse's getting, getting them all ready. Hey, the prophet Samuel's coming. He's coming to tell us who's the new king. Everyone line up. They're all wearing the best armor. They've all got their hair done, blah, blah, blah. And then it's like they don't even expect that David's going to be the one to get the job. And David gets the job. Now, David gets this promise, but then he doesn't become king until he's 30 years old. So there's more than a 15-year gap here. And this is in a time when he didn't have an iPhone recording of this prophecy. He didn't have it written down anywhere. All he had was his brothers as witnesses, which is not helpful because they're probably holding that against him. When five years later, he's still out there tending the sheep and they're like, oh, yeah, how's being king going for you? David, how's that working out for you? And he didn't have like a video of it like, no, Samuel told me, look. He didn't have that. We have that. You know, when we get a word from God from a prophet or a traveling speaker or something like that, it's like we record it, we look at it, we write it down. We're, you know, every day we claim it over our lives. David had none of that, right? 
So I'm sure after a while, David starts going, did that even happen? Like, did I imagine that? Did I actually get told I was going to be king? And he's probably getting made fun of. He's probably not having an easy time uh, holding on to this promise. So he gets this promise when he's 13. And then about seven years later, something happens in the kingdom of Israel. This kingdom called the Philistines, they are like the arch nemesis of, of Israel. They are the ongoing arch nemesis of the kingdom of Israel. They decide to attack or start making their way towards an attack of Israel. Uh, and funny enough, this is one of the kingdoms that they didn't destroy that they were supposed to destroy. So they start making their way towards Israel. Saul catches wind of this. So he brings his army down from the mountains to meet them in the Valley of Elah, which is a beautiful region uh, in that area. And so the Philistines, they set up camp or they set up their stronghold along the southern bank of the valley. And the Israelites... They set up their camp along the northern bank of the valley. And the two armies are just stuck there staring at each other for 40 days. Because in order for one of these nations to attack the other, they would have to go down the hill and into the valley and then up the other side, leaving them completely exposed. And so neither nation wants to be the first to attack. So after 40 days of this, of just staring at each other and nothing happening, one of the nations does what all of these ancient nations would do in this situation. This was actually a very common thing that would happen when two nations were at war and there was a valley in between. There was a very common thing that they would do. And it was, it was, a, it was a, uh, a tradition called single combat, which is basically one of the nations sends down a champion into the pit and challenges the other nation to do the same. So we see this all throughout history happening with ancient warfare. You can even see this in the movie Troy with Brad Pitt and Eric Banner. Great movie. When we're first introduced to uh, Brad Pitt's character, it's, it's in this exact scenario. His army is fighting another army and the other army sends out a champion to settle the whole beef between the two of them. And so they, they call on Brad Pitt because who wouldn't? And then he goes out there and he's a lot smaller than the big guy, but he just does this cool move. I'll let you watch the movie. And he defeats this guy. And that's just a really common thing that they would do. So the Philistines, they decide to be the first to do this because they think, well, we've actually got someone in mind. Uh, he's our favorite warrior. His name is Goliath. And he's a giant. Some texts say that he's about seven foot eight. Some ancient manuscripts say that he's over 11 foot. In any case, he's a terrifying and formidable enemy. So they send him down into the valley to challenge the Israelites. The Israelites, they are terrified. In uh, 1 Samuel 17, verse 10, Then the Philistine, which is Goliath, said, This day... I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. 
On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now skipping along to verse 25. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see now that this man keeps coming out? So Goliath every day is coming out and challenging them, and they're sending no one to, to meet him. He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him, and he will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. So Saul now is getting desperate. So he's, he's put out this reward. Anyone who can go down there and defeat this guy, I'm going to give him a lot of money. I'm going to, he's going to marry the princess, and he's never going to have to file a tax return again in his life. That's a pretty good deal. So David, he's been tending sheep for the past five years, mulling over this prophecy. One day I'm going to be king. I'm not king. All of his brothers have gone off to war to fight the Philistines. All of his brothers are on the front line waiting for something to happen with this deadlock that they're in with the Philistines. Eventually, Jesse, David's dad, says, David, why don't you go and bring your brothers some food on the front line? So David happily agrees to it. He's excited. He's excited. Hopefully he's going to get to see some action. That's what he's really there for. So he goes down to the front line and gives his brothers some bread and some cheese and then has a look around. He's like, what's going on here? Who's this guy down there? And the Israelites explain the situation to him. And then David starts going, what's all this I hear about a reward? And so he starts going, is this true that they're going to give whoever kills this guy, they're going to give him all this money, an undisclosed amount of money, and then he's going to get to marry the princess and he's going to get no taxes for the rest of his life. Is this true? And people are like, yep, it's true. His brothers start getting really annoyed with him and say, why don't you just go home? Uh, they challenge his attitude. They're like, your heart's conceded. You're just here because you wanted to see some bloodshed. Get out of here. And so David puts his hand up and goes, I'll do it. In 1 Samuel 17, uh, sorry, 17, 32, David goes to the king, he goes to Saul, and he says, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant, meaning me, will go and find him and fight him. Verse 33, Saul replied, You are not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned to me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me, this is one of my favorite parts, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hands of this Philistine. Saul is obviously enthralled by this whole speech and goes, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then we have this whole scene where David tries on the armor. It doesn't fit. David tries on the sword. It doesn't really work out. He goes, forget about it. I've got a better idea. Okay? 1 Samuel 17, 32 to 34. Sorry, that was the last one. Verse uh, 40. 
Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in a pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. Evidently, Goliath was jealous of David's skincare routine. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. I love it. I love some like battlefield banter. David said to the Philistine, You come at me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. I know, doesn't it just get you pumped up? And then this is one of my other favorite parts. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and I'll cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword and spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Verse 48, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle to meet him. Reaching into his bag, he took out a stone. He slung it, and he struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead... And he fell face down on the ground. And then it goes on to say that he walked over, took Goliath's sword, cut it off, and the battle was over. The whole army ran the other direction. It was a pretty anticlimactic battle, to be honest. It was over pretty quickly. And I love this story because we see it as an underdog story. But it's not really an underdog story. And the other thing I love about this story is that David never received any word or any promise that he was going to defeat Goliath. He didn't even pray about it. He didn't even go back home to Jesse and ask, Dad, what do you think? Like, I think I can actually beat this guy. What do you think I, can, like, I should do? He doesn't do that. He doesn't pray about it. He doesn't even go to Samuel and go, Samuel, you told me I'm going to be king one day. Can you give me a word on whether or not I should take down this Philistine? I think I can, but like, I want to make sure that God affirms it. David had one word. He had one promise, and that is, I'm going to be king one day. And that was all that David needed. And this is really interesting because Goliath wasn't technically David's problem. Goliath was technically Saul's problem. Saul was king. Saul was kind of supposed to be the one to go handle this. Goliath would have been David's problem had someone been sent down there and lost to Goliath. And then guess what? The Philistines invade. And then eventually David way out in the fields is going to be affected by this. But at the present time, Goliath wasn't actually 
his problem. He could have taken the same attitude all the rest of these guys did, which is, is some, can someone else handle this? Because I'm not going to go down there and fight this guy. What I like about David is he didn't see it as something that needed a whole lot of thought or a whole lot of, a whole lot of prayer, a whole lot of... Uh, he didn't see it as an obstacle. See, he didn't even see it as the main event. David's main event was becoming king one day. What I like about David is he took affirmative action against the giant. Now, oftentimes in Christian world, we think of giants as something in our life that is happening to us, right? Oh, I'm facing so many giants right now in my world. And that's true. Sometimes we get attacked, right? Sometimes we have unexpected things happen to us that are like giants in our world. But this isn't what this story is about. See, Goliath wasn't happening to David. David was happening to Goliath, actually. And this is really pivotal because David signed up for this giant slaying. You know, we, we, we preach a lot of messages about how to slay your giants, right? We don't talk about how to volunteer for slaying your giants, which is exactly what David did. See, a skilled, this is why this isn't an underdog story. A skilled ancient slinger in the Hebrew world was actually one of the most vital parts of any army. Like an archer or anything like that. They were, they were long-range artillery. They were usually actually the deciding factor in, in any given battle, which is pretty insane. A skilled Hebrew slinger, would, it's not a slingshot like this. This is what we picture, him going down there with a, you know? It's not that, it's this, okay? It's, a, it's two pieces of leather with a big leather strap in it, and they would put a rock in it, and they would sling it around at seven revolutions a second, and then they would let one of the sides of the string go, and they would send the projectile flying at 35 meters a second, which is... 160 kilometers an hour. A skilled slinger could accurately hit and kill his target from 200 meters away. It was so accurate, in fact, that they could be used to kill birds in flight. David has just been spending the last 10 years in the field protecting his flock against lions, against bears, killing birds, practicing with his sling for 10 years. Now, if you run the ballistics on an ancient Hebrew sling, which you can, and people have done this, it's really interesting. You can go look this up. The ballistics, uh, the stopping power on an ancient Hebrew slingshot is the same caliber as a 45-millimeter handgun. You can go on YouTube and watch videos of people using these things, and you can watch the catastrophic damage that these things do. It's really funny that we think this is an underdog story because when you really look at what was going on here, Goliath didn't even stand a chance. 
When David goes down to meet Goliath, he's not 200 meters away from him. Also, David has experience killing lions and bears. I don't know if you've ever seen a lion and a bear in the wild, but they are way more dangerous than any human being. I don't care if he's 11 foot tall. I don't care if he's got a spear and a javelin and a sword and a shield and 100 pounds of armor. A bear or a lion, that's a terrifying creature. So when Saul tells David, hey man, I don't know if this battle is for you. This guy has all this experience. David is walking in with way more experience. Way more experience. Goliath has the expectation that someone is going to come meet him in hand-to-hand combat. Saul has the expectation he's sending someone to go fight him in hand-to-hand combat, which is really where the crux of this story lies. There was an unspoken rule in this whole game that these ancient warriors would play that you were supposed to go down and fight them with whatever they were challenging you to fight in. No one thought about bringing a slingshot down there because everybody knew how unfair that would be. That's, it, that's total out-of-the-box thinking for these guys. So it's really funny to me that we think of this as an underdog story. David was bringing a gun to a knife fight. David wasn't taking any chances either. He went down and he took five stones. He loaded up a full magazine of bullets. And by the way, the stones in the Valley of Elah are not ordinary stones. They're they're a compound called beryllium sulfate. I think I got that right. They're twice the density of regular stones. He basically got lead balls and put them in this gun and he walked down there. And this is why David has so much confidence. He's done this a million times. He shot so many birds out of the air. No problem. He's got five bullets in his magazine. This guy has close range weapons and he's super slow. You know, so worst case scenario, I miss. I can just run around him and keep shooting, right? David starts running down there with all this confidence, running towards the giant. He's not waiting for the giant to come to him. He's running towards him. He shoots him straight in the face and doesn't take him any chances, cuts his head off and walks away, right? So I want to give you some lessons as we close from David on how to walk in God's promises, okay? Number one, if you're taking notes, your unfulfilled promises should influence your current circumstances, okay? Your unfulfilled promises should influence your current circumstances. David walked in the promise before it was fulfilled. What I mean by this, David was never promised that he was going to kill Goliath, but he was promised he was going to be king, and he wasn't king yet. So David is probably thinking, well, I'm, I, promised, I was promised I was going to be king. That was five years ago. But I do remember it. And I know what I heard. And I know that God's power came upon me. So I know I'm going to be king one day. I'm not king yet. So unless this Philistine is going to make God a liar, I have nothing to worry about. I'm going to go down there. I'm going to kill this guy. Because I'm going to be king one day. And I'm not king yet. Which means if he kills me, God is a liar. This is what we mean by walking in your promise before it was fulfilled. 
he didn't need to ask God about whether or not he could kill Goliath. He knew he could kill Goliath. Because of the other promise, everything else becomes peripheral. Number two, your unique God-given gifting makes you overqualified for your battles. See, David's years of protecting sheep made him overqualified as a giant slayer. This is not an underdog story. Goliath didn't stand a chance against this guy. He may, it may have been an underdog story if Goliath, if David went down with a sword and tried to fight him hand-to-hand combat, but that's not, David had no intention of doing that, and why would he? He doesn't know anything about sword fighting, but he does know how to shoot a gun. That's what he does all day, every day, out in the field. So David's unique God-given gifting is what overqualified him to go down and handle this situation. Number three, in a world that fights with swords and spears, God has given you slings and stones. When they bring daggers, God gives you a fully loaded gun. See, religion is the enemy of innovation, and that's exactly what was happening in this battle. None of them thought to use a slingshot because it's an unspoken rule. We go down there and we fight them like this. That's religion. Oh, I don't know if we can have drums in church. It just doesn't... You know? We're at a stalemate with the enemy. How do we... How do we reach a new generation? Not with a pipe organ, unfortunately. So somebody, I don't know, I wasn't here. I grew up in a church with drums. But at some point, somebody decided, what if we bring modern music into the church? That's thinking with slings and stones, not swords and spears, right? God, this is, this is how Jesus operated. Everybody thought the Messiah is coming back on a horse, with a lightsaber, breathing fire. He's going to overthrow the Roman Empire for us. And then what does God do? None of that. God comes back as a baby. A baby. And then what does he do? Washes everyone's feet. And then what does he do? Dies. What? All the religious people. You can't do that, Jesus. You can't talk to that person. You can't, have, you can't have dinner with prostitutes and tax collectors, Jesus. You can't do that. You can't take a gun down there, David. Yeah, I can. The rule is I just have to kill this guy. I'm going to go down there and I'm going to kill this guy. God loves thinking and operating outside the box. So as I close, I'm going to invite the worship team up. How to locate your promise, okay? Because this is all good and well for David. He had a prophet come over and tell him exactly what he was going to be one day. So he had this tangible thing to, to think about, right? What about me? I don't have a, you know, a prophetic word. Maybe you do, and that's great. Hold on to that. Find wherever that is. Write it down. Remember it. Okay? But maybe you don't have a promise yet. And it's hard to locate a promise right now because we're so distracted. We don't get time with God enough. We don't 
sit in silence and, and listen for him enough. So we're, we're so distracted. It's hard to receive a promise sometimes. I get it. So how do we locate our promise? Well, for starters, the Bible is filled with 7,147 promises from God to man. And I don't mean to a man, I mean to us. That's not including all the promises to specific people like David. 7,147 promises the Bible has to us. So that is a good place to start if you're looking for a promise from God. Start with the ones that we have. Because here's the thing, we have over 7,000 promises in the Bible from God to us. David had one promise. He didn't have the Bible. David wasn't reading the book of Romans or Hebrews or any of this and going, that's right. He didn't have the book of Jeremiah. You know, he wasn't waking up every morning in the sheep paddock going, that's right, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, you know, like he didn't have a coffee mug with, with any of these scriptures on it. He didn't have the fridge magnets and the the bumper stickers and the key rings to remind him of the promises. He had one promise, and look at what he did with that promise. Not only did he become king 15 years later, I might add, but he slayed some giants along the way because why not? So if David could do that with one promise then what can we do with 7,000 promises? So I'm not going to read you the 7,000 promises because we're going to be here all day, but I'm just going to list off 10 that you guys can take home with you to get you started. These are some of my favorites. Number one, he promises that you have a purpose. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Number two, He promises that the risk he is calling you to take is worth it. Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Okay, So that's actually a double promise. Not only is he promised the risk is worth it, but he promises that he's working all things for your good. Three, he promises to answer your prayers. Okay? In John 14, we see Jesus says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name. So what that means is if you're looking for a specific promise, pray about it. God promises he will answer that prayer. He will give you a promise. If you want something, it's like, God, give me a David promise. Tell me what I'm supposed to be doing. He will give it to you. He promises to answer your prayers. Number four, he promises to supply all your needs. Number five, he promises to give you rest. Number six, he promises to love you unconditionally. Number seven, he promises that you will have eternal life. Number eight, he promises healing. Okay? We're in a season of global pandemic. That's a promise to stand on. Number nine, he promises freedom from all sin. And number 10, my favorite promise for today is he promises to fulfill all of his promises. He promises that in the Bible. So my goal today is that each and every one of you will understand a few things walking out of here. One, you are not the underdog. David was not the underdog. You're not the underdog. You've got a unique gifting that God has given you that overqualifies you for whatever giants you see in your way. Number two, God's promise is your gun in every knife fight. Not just the knife fight that pertains to the promise. 
Goliath's battle wasn't necessarily pertaining to David's promise. But his promise was still the gun that he brought to that knife fight. I'm, I'm going to be king one day. I'm not king. I'm going to go down and kill this guy. I'm not going to be afraid to do it. And the last one is that your giants don't stand a chance. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, maybe you're here today or watching online or listening online and you're wondering where to start with this whole journey. Maybe you've listened to this and something in your heart has answered this and gone, man, I know, I knew that was true. I knew that I was designed for a unique purpose. I knew there was something else out there. And maybe you don't know where to start. Well, the good news is there is a promise to stand on to start with. And that is the promise that Jesus gives us, that if we put our faith in him, that we will have abundant and everlasting life in his kingdom. So if you haven't accepted Jesus into your heart, whether you're here in the room or listening or watching online, I just want to invite you to pray this prayer after me and invite him into your heart. So repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross for me, for taking my sins and exchanging it for eternal life. I receive your forgiveness and I thank you for your salvation. I choose to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the City Church Podcast. If you enjoyed this message or God worked through you in any way, then please take a moment to contact us through our website at city-church.net or email us your feedback at info at city-church.net.